This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies to whatever you're streaming. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the studio is my co-host, Lisa Kovacevic. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Flick. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. And we have a special guest, writer and academic, Dr. Tressa Leclerc. Hi, Tressa. Hi there. Hey, Flick. Hey, Lisa. How's it going? We're well. We're going to be unpacking this uh, through our discussion of two TV series that are currently streaming, Netflix's Brand New Cherry Flavour and the Emmy award-winning series I May Destroy You, which is currently available on Foxtel and Binge. Look, it's impossible uh, to talk about power without acknowledging that we're broadcasting on stolen land, specifically the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, This is and always will be Aboriginal land. And whenever we're talking about women in power, it's important to note that we live in what theorist Bell Hooks refers to as a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, which is to say things like your race, uh, education level, sexuality, ableness, whether you're cis or trans, all create different modes of discrimination and privilege. I also want to flag uh, that both TV shows reference sexual harassment and assault. And look, we're not going to be recounting the specifics, um, but um, if this is something you're going to find distressing, uh, you can just tune back into Triple R in an hour. I'd like to remind our listeners that support is always available here in Victoria. You can call 1800 806 292, which is statewide confidential telephone crisis counselling service for people who have experienced both past and recent sexual assault. Um, So the theme Women in Power is a reference to Mary Beard's feminist manifesto of the same name, but it also speaks to the way female identity is so often defined in the absence of power, in the abuse of power, and also in the pursuit of power. And it correlates to the characters in our two TV series who seek to have power over their stories and, by extension, their lives. And one of the key ways in which women come into contact with power in screen culture is through representation, which is both on the screen and and behind the camera. Tressa, you're a lecturer at the University of Melbourne in School and Culture and Communication, Uh, You're a writer and you were the coordinator of Present Tense Literary Talk Series. Your research is, uh, it's covered everything from diversity in the literary industry to ethics in writing to racism in food discourse. Do you think it's possible for women to reclaim power and agency through representation in screen culture? And, And do you think it's necessarily that they have to be the creators of that content? Oh, that's a great question, Flick. Um, yeah, I think it. I don't. I don't think we can underestimate how powerful representation is, and we can think about representation in so many different ways. I mean, representation can be just existing in a space where, you know, there's not many people like you in that space. Um, we, especially, you know, as you so beautifully mentioned at the start, consider marginalized identities like. For example, you know, watching Brand New Cherry Flavor, the lead actress, her, she's got family from Peru, and that was really exciting for me. It's funny when we think about this idea of representation and seeing people on the screen. I've got family from Chile, and so when I see that, I get really excited. But, you know, when we talk about it, we can't really describe 
that feeling of seeing yourself when you're not used to seeing people that look like you in lead roles in in series. So that's I such a great way to put it. I feel like I get that buzz when I see what I would describe as like feminist films or feminist TV shows where I'm like, oh, wow, women who maybe look like me. Yeah, that sense of empowerment. It's so wonderful. And then, of course, Michaela Cole. I mean, amazing. How incredible to be running a show that um, has such a powerful story behind it. I mean, it's it's a whole nother level, I think, of representation and one that's an incredible story to follow at the same time as watching the series. Yeah, totally. And look, we'll, we'll dig into both of these TV series in more detail um, and definitely that whole element of um, having control over your story will, will come up throughout this, um, t- throughout tonight's episode. Um, Lisa, apart from I May Destroy You, um, which uh, we'll be talking about later on in the show, you also got to speak with the showrunners of Brand New Cherry Flavour. For the listeners who aren't familiar with the show, can you give us a little taster? Yeah, so I spoke to them um, last week and although <clears throat> the subject matter tonight is really weighty. Um, it was a really like nice, lighthearted chat with, with two uh, creators who, who I also feel, because this, this uh, series sits probably firmly in the sort of horror thriller genre, um, and they just seem as much fans of the genre as they are creators of it. So it was quite a joyful discussion about um, their influences and references. Um, and I sort of say, if you like David Lynch mixed with a little bit of Cronenberg and a sprinkling of natural born killers, <laughs> <laughs> maybe some Lovecraft for good measure, all bound up in some feral female rage, then um, this new series is probably right up your dark alley. Um, I can give you a bit of a precy about yep. the, what the show's about. Um, it's set in the 1990s and young filmmaker Lisa Nova, played by Rosa Salazar, heads to Hollywood to meet a famous producer, played by Eric Lang, who wants to adapt her debut short, which is a thriller, sort of horror of sorts, uh, into a feature. But his duplicity is soon revealed. He takes control of her film and Lisa soon finds herself falling down a rabbit hole of revenge and horror when she meets Boro, a witch-like character played by Catherine Keener, who promise her, promises her the revenge she seeks. In return, Boro requires regular payment by way of kittens, kittens that Lisa finds herself vomiting up without warning and who are retrieved by Boro's zombie aids. Uh, the series has an unhinged punk energy and is driven by mystery and intrigue, laced with stylized noir visuals, supernatural horror and a dreamlike sensibility. Um, last week I spoke to the show's creators, which we're about to hear. Triple. Ah. Uh, so welcome back to Primal Screen. My next guests are the co-creators of the new Netflix original series, Brand New Cherry Flavour, Nick and Tosca and Lenore Zion. Nick and Lenore, welcome to Primal Screen. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Oh, yeah, it's great to have you here. Now, the series is based on a book by Todd Grimson that was written back in 96. I was just wondering how you came across the text because it was out of print, I believe. What made you want to tell the story some 25 years later? Yeah, I, I had um, encountered encountered Todd's short stories online about 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, I started corresponding with him by email, not knowing what the backstory was. He told me about this book and I read it totally cold and it just stuck with me. You know, it had this like demonic energy. It it was like a hybrid of all these things that I loved, but it was still its own thing. And so it it stayed with me. And years later, after I had started a you know TV writing career, I had been a novelist before that. 
Lenore and I became friends. We worked together on Channel Zero. At a certain point, I, I gave Lenore the book and was like, I think you might like this. And like, is there something here? Like, would you be interested in? I, I was like, you might like Lisa Nova. <laughs> well, she's and a rem- yeah, yeah. Well, she's a remarkable character, remarkable heroine, and she's she's interesting because she's a victim first and foremost, but she's got a lot of power too. Which this is, I think, this is the thing that's attracting me to the series, and I think the very fact that she's an aspiring writer director with this sort of unwavering self-belief in her own talent and she's not an actress she's not this sort of wide-eyed ingenue she's complex as a heroine and it's interesting that she's come about at this time because for years we've had these amoral male characters at the center of these high quality tv series like your tony sopranos or your walter whites do you do you think that there's like a shift now toward more female-led serials of this kind lenore i mean it seems that way there's there have been a lot of good shows out recently. Nick actually turned me on to a really interesting show called Losing Alice that had a fantastic female lead. There's, If you look for them, they're out there. There's a ton. Was that the appeal to you that the lead character here is this anti-hero who will sacrifice those closest to her in order to get what she wants? Lisa Nova appealed to me because she is unrelenting and creative in the way that she seeks what she wants. She's a kind of amoral character, which is a fun character to write. She she has something really important taken from her and she's not going to she's not going to stand for it. Yeah, I really enjoyed the metaphors you used to explore the exploitation of female creativity both intellectually and physically. A producer tries to steal a young woman's film to steal her original idea. And in order to enact revenge on him, she seeks out the assistance of a witch named Boro and played by Catherine Keener. But in exchange for her services, she requires Lisa Nova to vomit up or birth kittens away for this witch to harvest this young woman's vitality. And it just reminded me of the ways in which women's life-giving bodies have been a battleground for control. For example, you know, the recent abortion laws in Texas. There's something about body horror and female power and powerlessness there that I find really interesting. Is that something that you'd intentionally hope to explore? Yeah. I mean, um, we, we, we thought about it in terms of the magic being a, a metaphor for, for creativity. And she is seen as a person who can be exploited. And she turns that around on, uh, on the people who try to take what, what she has to give. And I, I was really surprised to hear that the kittens were not part of the original story, that this was an idea that you had, Lenore. Where did that come from? That, I find that astounding because it's so central to the story. Well, I, I think it comes from Todd's book, really. You know, he had this brilliant, uh, you know, this brilliant backstory for Boro that included this, like a jaguar, a white jaguar spirit and everything. It, it It's an inspiring book. You get a lot from it. Yeah, I'm actually so keen to read it now. There's this real sort of feral feline energy that underpins the whole the whole show and the characters and I, I guess yes it does it does make a lot of a lot of sense Lenore I was reading that you were a um, psychologist in a previous life is that right yes I was how much of that do you bring to to your career as a writer uh, hard to say. I mean, I don't bring any of the stories that I have been told by former clients, of course, but, you know, my basic understanding of human nature, uh, that kind of applies. Uh, you know, this series 
explores themes of trauma, revenge, ambition. What is it about the horror genre, do you think, that offers such fertile ground to explore such deeply psychological themes? Oh, well, I, I mean, body horror in particular, you know, as, as, as you mentioned, we use that a lot. And I think that I, I think that there's something universally terrifying about the idea of losing control over one's physical self, um, which is one of the reasons why something like chronic illness or, you know, you know, any kind of debilitating physical problem is a horrifying, horrifying thing to to have to face. I think that in in horror writing, there's a lot of creative manifestation of that particular fear. And I think that that exists a lot in brand new cherry flavor. Nick, I I wanted to talk to you about visual influences um, that have sort of underpinned a lot of the work that you've done. Uh, You've worked on a lot of horror sci-fi series, um, Channel Zero, Hannibal, uh, and the soon-to-be-released Guillermo del Toro feature Antlers, I believe. Is that coming out soon? Yes, finally. Because <laughs> that was based on a book that you wrote, is it? A short story? Short story. Short story. It was supposed to come out um, like a month after the pandemic started. So now it's finally coming out this Halloween. Right. That makes sense because I just got a presser for another film that Guillermo's releasing. I'm like, how did he do two <laughs> once? But I see things have been on ice for a while. Look, you're primarily a writer and you've made the transition to television. Was that always on the cards for you? No, absolutely not. I I didn't watch TV very much when I was a kid. I watched like Twin Peaks and The X-Files and The Simpsons. and That was it. That's all you Um, needed to watch, right? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you could probably tell if you look at the stuff that, you know, uh, that I've done since and that Lenore and I have just done, like, (laughs) those are pretty um, meaningful influences. But um, no, it wasn't. Uh, But TV in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, as everybody knows, has become a destination for writers because it is it's a real opportunity for the writer to see their vision through from the page to the screen in a way that that features are not you know you write the script and you hand it off and it gets changed and transformed and you see it on the screen in a movie and you're like cool that's the movie they they made from that you know original thing but um when we're creating something for the tv screen you know lenore and i were able to we were on set the whole time we were able to kind of get what we had talked about just sort of like straight from our brains onto the screen vomit kittens vomit kittens that's right well i was curious about how much creative freedom netflix affords creators like yourselves is it just free reign it was so i think the thing i love about this is it's like unfettered uh, creative fantasy gone wild and i i don't know if that's all due to the source material or yourselves or a bit of both i'm not sure it reminded me in some ways of um Panos Cosmatos's 2018 film Mandy, where it's just so wild. <laughs> um, I mean, the references are there. I can see Lynch, I can see Cronenberg, maybe even a bit of Oliver Stone, but it's so uniquely original at the same time. Does Netflix give you free reign? Is there, is there, is there more creative freedom in these streaming platforms funding a show like this? I'm not I'm not sure how it compares to to other places but for our part we didn't have any restrictions they let us pretty much do whatever we wanted it was fantastic Yeah it's it's worth saying like we're still incredulous that this show was greenlit right like <laughs> it's a out of print book um it's a Hollywood story it's sort of a genre hybrid so we're really grateful to Netflix. We'd be like, yeah, oh, and then she throws up a cat and then there's this uh, <laughs> sex scene. Okay, well, you know, the, the, the fact that they let us just kind of do it is amazing. It was a, The budget is low and with that comes... Um, 
comes a lot of uh, really liberating ability to just put it on screen. You talk, you just touched on the, the sex scene, which is quite uh, remarkable. I think it's in about episode four that that occurs. And that sort of reminded me directly, I think it's Videodrome, the Cronenberg film where James Wood's character has a vaginal orifice in his, um, yeah, in his torso uh, where a, a videotape is, is uh, <laughs> inserted. And that plays out in a really horrific way. I feel like that was a direct reference. It might not have been where Lisa Nova has a similar sort of gash in the the side of her abdomen, which she rightly so looks at with horror, but then pleasure. And I love the way that that scene is turned on its head in that way. And her lover enters that scene a little later and there's a second, he gains pleasure from it too. It's not this sort of abject horror that it should be. And I thought that was so interesting. Can you speak a little bit about how that scene came about? Yeah. I mean, I don't know where to begin. We, we're talking about um, uh, how Lisa would would regain her power, you know, how she would um, uh, react to her body being manipulated and and out of her control and how she would bring it back into her control. And so we thought that scene was a really interesting um, and kind of emotional way to, to tell that story, I hope. And Honestly, the reaction to it has been a little bit stronger than I anticipated. Um, I really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we 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 play off each other, you know, creatively in terms of like escalating the ideas, and uh, and one of the keys to the show creatively was the day early on we were brainstorming far before we had sold the show when Lenore came up with the, the vomiting kittens idea, and, and it just felt so right in the world, and then we start to think of like, well, where does that go, and what else is done to her body and what how how can she turn that around uh, i actually remember the day nick you conceived of this i remember because you you either texted or called me i can't remember which one and you said how do you feel about an orifice and i was like i feel good about it <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> I don't remember the exact conversations, but yeah, I mean that those are the sort of ongoing brand new cherry flavor writers room discussions. Uh, if you've just tuned in, uh, I'm speaking with Lenore Zion and Nick and Tosca about their new series, brand new cherry flavor, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Uh, you have several writers that work across the series. The two of you are credited on a few episodes yourself. And Nick, I think you direct the final episode. Is that right? That is right. Is that your first foray into directing? It is. It is. That was my first time uh, properly you know, doing an episode of TV. And it, it, it's it's really hard to be show running and directing at the same time, uh, which is why, you know, when you have two showrunners and you can kind of trade off responsibilities, I was able to do that. And we've shot most of that episode like as the pandemic was bearing down. So that added a certain level of increased chaos to the proceedings. I mean, making the show, it had a very feral, chaotic energy. But uh, and I I think that comes through on screen. But, you know, directing. Yeah, it was uh, I'm very proud of it. It was a great experience. Oh, you should be. Guys, do you get any feedback from Netflix about ratings? How does that work in the streaming world now? A little bit, but but not too much. Like, and what does it even mean? Yeah. Right? Like it's not the traditional ratings and you don't see the numbers for all the other shows 
you know, the amount of people who've seen the show are like kind of incredible to me. I can't believe that many people have seen, you know, a, a kitten emerge from Rose's <laughs> Salazar's rib cage. But the reaction to the show has been has been amazing. And on casting and Rosa Salazar, you, you've also got Catherine Keener in here. Was she was Catherine Keener always uh, in your mind for that role of um, Boro, who's this uh, witchy kind of rock star figure? Definitely. Definitely. You know, she's. She's got that she's got that vibe about her. You know, if you look at her body of work, there's just always something really really cool about her. Credit to you guys cuz there is. It's it's there for us to see, but I'd never I would never have envisaged her in this role and yet it's the most perfect role for her. She she underplays it. She looks like almost like a Mick Jagger or a Janis Joplin kind of character. Um she sent us photos of Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jane Fonda, um, there were some others. And she also she picked a lot of her own wardrobe. Like she when she sh- showed up, she had a bunch of stuff that she'd gotten in a vintage store in Miami. And quite a few of those pieces ended up on her. She really had the kind of like decadent, like faded rock star who's still so charismatic vibe, like in her head when she showed up on set. Did Rosa Salazar bring anything of her own? I mean, aside from her acting chops, but um, of her own flair to the to the role of Lisa Nova? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. She, those are her tattoos, except for the Jaguar one. She picked a lot of her wardrobe. Sorry, she picked a, a lot of the jewelry, the accessories. Yeah. And, and, and beyond that, you know, she, she brought Lisa Nova to life. So, you know, every single choice she made as an actress is, is what created Lisa Nova. Mm. Yeah. She has a real power and intensity to her performance that is quite remarkable, especially um, paired against um, Eric Lang, who plays Lou Burke, uh, the producer who tries to steal her movie. He's probably best known, I guess, for his work in Narcos. I thought he was excellently cast as well. I mean, he's he's not a clear cut villain. There's something um, almost effeminate about him that makes you feel like he's a bit warm and cuddly almost. <laughs> and, um, and then he has this really nasty, almost violent side beneath that. Can you speak a little bit about how you came to cast um, Eric in the role? First of all, by being incredibly lucky. <laughs> yeah, he was, we, we had actually seen him in um, Escape at Danamora and where he plays, like it's, he's a chameleon. He's like unrecognizable in that role from that to this. And he, we had heard from uh, Brett Johnson, who's the the one of the co-creators of and showrunner of Danamora, just how amazing he was. So you know, we we thought of him early, and he is he really is a chameleon. Like he's and he's a, just an amazing actor. Uh, I want to work with him on on anything. He's he's yes. uh, really, really underrated, amazing actor. There's one one other actor who has a minor role. Um, and I've got to have a name in front of me, but the Australian actress that um, Hannah Hannah Levine. Hannah oh, Levine. Brilliant. <laughs> um, she, she's great. She brings a real um, pop of comedy to scenes, which is really welcomed. And I I wanted to ask about the choice to allow her to leave her Australian accent in because I'm seeing that more and more in American shows whereas before it was really like we can't have an Australian accent people won't understand what they're saying um was it was there a reason for leaving her as an Australian and it and it's set in the 90s so it's I don't know I found that perplexing but really welcomed as well we just thought it was funny and distinctive and interesting and and it made her feel I don't know she she said that her like spirit animal for Christine was a flamingo. 
And somehow that like makes sense right with like the 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 accent. But she auditioned with an American accent and we knew that she was Australian. So we asked um, to see it the other way. And we're like, yeah, she's she's Christine. Leave it in. As I just mentioned, the show is set in the 90s. It was written in the 90s. um, And yet it sort of speaks so much to the current zeitgeist around the Me Too movement, why was it important to to leave it set in the 90s as opposed to today? Well, you know, I, I think it was important, first of all, to honor the story in the book. And that's a 1990s bo- book. You know, the story is set then. But also, you know, it's it just functionally, if you want to make a movie in the present day, you can just take your iPhone and make a movie. So the challenges are not quite as, I guess, career stopping if 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 you're really uh, passionate about making a movie you can do it but in 1990 you didn't have an iphone no no there were a lot more obstacles and it seemed almost impenetrable to break into somewhere like hollywood particularly as a woman um and i yeah i agree i, I mean it works on on a narrative level um but i think i also really enjoy the aesthetic as well and i mean the fact that <clears throat> there are nods to obviously david lynch Cronenberg uh, and, and a lot of these filmmakers of that era. That works for you, though. It doesn't seem derivative. The the aesthetic of the show, you know, we talk about this stuff beforehand with like uh, Celiana, our DP, an amazing, amazing DP, uh, Troy, our production designer, and like Arkasha, who directed the pilot. Every it's a you know conversation among all of us to sort of build that aesthetic. Like you said, we really did want to kind of write a little bit of a love letter to those '90s movies. Everybody talks about the Lynch and Cronenberg references because we name drop Cronenberg in the pilot. You and, <laughs> you know, there's the scene of uh, at the party that's very explicitly a Lynch homage. But it's also Natural Born Killers was a big visual and aesthetic influence. Uh, Perdita Durango, some other movies. So it, it really wasn't as kind of Lynch and Cronenberg specific as um, as it's kind of come off as. But we watched a lot of those films and and had the writers watch a lot of them and read books like uh, Hollywood Animal and um, Jane Hampshire's book about the making of Natural Born Killers. So it, it kind of permeated the the whole aesthetic. So there, that's interesting because I do wonder how you get a whole team of creatives to be in your head, I guess, on the same page. And um, I guess that makes sense. You feed them <laughs> what you're consuming. Well, yeah, that, I mean, you, you also hire writers whose you know whose work you admire and whose work you you want to see in the show. You know, we we pick people whose voices we we liked and respected. <laughs> um, Nick, I know you've probably got a lot on your production slate is, but do the two of you together have more projects that you're working on? Well, not at the moment, but you know, you never know. We're, we're both running uh, separate shows now, but I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty proud of this one and you know, the future holds possibilities. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we'll work again uh, together at some point. It feels, I mean, the series feels very self-contained, but the ending also feels slightly open. Um, so I'm hoping for a season two, but I don't, I don't know that you guys are, I feel like you've probably said everything you wanted to say with this story. Is that right? Or is there more to be said? You know, when we set out like pretty early on, we realized that the themes and ideas and the visuals and stuff, we wanted to make sure that, that it was all in the first season. And we kind of imagined it as like, 
you know, how there will be blood is like the first, I don't know, like 80 pages or something of the uh, Sinclair novel that it's based on. We sort of imagined doing that with with brand new cherry flavor. There's so much in the book, though. It was like overwhelming. So we, we kind of distilled it. Yeah, I, I read somewhere, I think that you only used the first 60 pages or something of the book. Is that true? Yeah, about. That's incredible. Well, uh, look, Lenore and Nick, I thank you so much for your time and for um, checking in with us down here in Australia. It's doing, I mean, I don't know what sort of stats you're getting, but anecdotally, I can say it's doing very well here. <laughs> Everyone um, that I speak to is just loving it. It's becoming a word of mouth success in my circles anyway. That's great. I love to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. That's our co-creators of Brand New Cherry Flavor, Nick and Tosca and Lenore Zion. You can watch the entire series and I highly recommend that you do on Netflix. I'm Lisa Kovacevic and you're listening to 3 Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen with Flick Ford and myself, Lisa Kovacevic. We're looking at representations of women and their relationship to power on the small screen. And as such, we're also joined by Dr. Tressa LeClaire. Tressa, what did you make of this show about a young woman trying to make it as a filmmaker in 90s Hollywood, but soon gets caught up in a world of corruption, witches and, well, kittens? <laughs> oh, I absolutely loved it. I mean, what's not to love about kittens and horror? Like, think about like... <laughs> It kind of was a match made in heaven, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, it's so good. I mean, I think about like Alien, which had a female protagonist as well, Ripley and Jonesy the cat in that. And there's just something, I don't know, there's something quite empowering about the cat lady. And also, as you were talking about body horror. I totally agree. And it's funny you mentioned Alien because today I was sort of thinking, what is this whole show, you know, really about? And to me, it really it plays into and explores themes that... Um, writer Barbara Creed really explores in The Monstrous Feminine. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and her her whole analysis of the horror genre and, and um, females not as victims in these films but um, as the monsters themselves. And I think that this lead character of Lisa Nova really embodies that archaic mother. She has this creative power in the filmic world but she's also this incubator for kittens which is just hilarious because they're so aligned with female energy and creativity right yeah and it's yeah. also I love it's the kind of a re-scripting of pregnancy but in this way that is very comic but also disgusting <laughs> yeah it's great and yeah. yeah and to like sort of further to that point I, I love the way that the show looks at the monstrous maternal body and how that differs you know, from that of the male and it's this life-giving force and um, you have all these uh, other characters trying to take that away from mm. her. You have the producer who wants to steal her film, but you also have this witch character who we find out, played by Catherine Keener, who um, we find out is actually, the, whose origins are male um, mm. and and she, he is um, trying to sort of um, steal that life force from her by making her birth these ideas, these yeah. this energy. Yeah, I do love that, that beautiful layering of um, her film as her baby as well, like as film lovers. I think that's very relatable. Tracy, you're actually the first person online that I saw raving about this series. Um, how did you first get onto it? Were you just like scrolling through Netflix and come across, came across it? Oh, my gosh, I think I was. I think I was scrolling <laughs> through Netflix. And then I turned it on and there was just this incredible scene that looked like it was out of Lost Highway. You know, you're going yes. down the highway we talk about cats. There's a cat in the road and I'm sitting there watching it probably like most people going, nothing better happen to this cat. <laughs> it's, it's going through. And you immediately get that sense of suspense 
And I thought, oh no, I had to, I had to pause it and ask my partner if he wanted to watch it as well, because, you know, television show fidelity, watching a show with your partner is a thing as well. It's part of that kind <laughs> of ritual is. that we do with Netflix. <laughs> so you need to make sure you're watching the shows at the same time. You kind of tee it up. But yeah, I was like, this looks like quality, like a really quality show that I'd love to watch. And I think there's something really special about having something you're excited about during lockdown mm. on Netflix. Cause so many shows can be um, produced very quickly and not have, you know, that in depth of a storyline, but this one, I mean, the actors were phenomenal. Um, their facial expressions, the camera work, everything was really, really exciting. Yeah. So I, I was, I was, was hooked. hooked. Oh, yeah, me, me too. And I'm a big Lynch fan and, uh, and that they sort of had me at the Lost Highway reference. There's also a lovely uh, scene at an art gallery opening, which sort of directly references another scene from Lost Highway, which is, um, is it called, is he called the mystery man? Uh, and, oh yeah. And uh, yeah, Catherine Keener kind of embodies <laughs> that, that, that space. Oh, she's perfect. She's great. She's great in it. Also, and, I was just going to think as well, like this, there's all these cinematic references in it. Like you've already, you both mentioned quite a few, like Lynch with, you know, it's very twins, Twin Peaksy, you mm-hmm. could say as well. Yeah. Um, I was actually kind of loving that whole like real meta narrative into like filmmaking as well. And I love Lisa as a character. Lisa Nova is just so awesome. She She's so passionate and she's so hungry for, for creating, um, creating a film and getting it out there. I agree. And she, it sort of it looks at um, other themes too, like the nature of revenge. Um, mm. uh, she, This man tries to steal her film and so she seeks the aid of this witch character um, and she's and who's wonderful. I mean, she talks about like sex magic and blood magic in this such deadpan way. She talks about <laughs> like this is how you use the coffee machine at work yeah, kind yeah. of thing, a bit of sex magic, a <laughs> bit of blood magic, here's your latte. Um, uh, but she says to her, I'm going to connect you to him. You know, and now a less ambitious person would, you know, alarm bells would ring, but she doesn't care. She's like, I, I don't care. I, I want my revenge. Yeah. But it took, but then in doing that, she's so connected to him and she ends up suffering through mm. that. And I, I, I like that, that sort of comment on the nature of revenge, how you, how it, it doesn't distance you from that person. It brings no. you closer to them, you know? Yeah. There's that, there's oh, that that's kind interesting. of, yeah. there's a lot of talk as well about forgiveness. Forgiveness is actually a bit of a selfish act because you're trying to release yourself from that, which yes. I always find interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I love the fact, I mean, it's interesting because this feels like such a modern show in a lot of ways because it's set in the 90s but you know we've we've kind of still in you couldn't say the aftermath but me too movement very yeah. fresh in our minds um a whole investigation into um sexual abuse in the hollywood and here um it's so interesting, isn't it, how current it feels, but they capture the 90s really well. They do. And as they said in that interview, they couldn't have said it now because making trying to get a film up now is a very different affair. There mm. are a lot more obstacles in the 90s. You couldn't record anything on a smartphone and upload it to YouTube or tweet a tweet about it. It was There were a lot of barriers, and so I think it makes sense to set it in that time just on a mm. narrative level. Um, but uh, stylistically it really works for them too, and, the, and I love the way that um, – Visually, they've imbued it with um, the filmmakers of that time too. Yeah, it really, yep. really works. And surprisingly, like Tressa was saying, this you know when you first watch 
watch it. It looks like a quality show, and it is. But it was really low budget. I was so surprised when was they told really me that. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was like, "Why wow, you really pulled it off?" But that some, to that point, they said it gave them a lot of creative freedom. Um, and it also, I, I know too from being on the other side of the camera that when you do have restrictions, it does make you sort of reach further. You yeah, know, when you yeah. don't have the the yeah. money. And I think that they really have, and they've really pulled it off. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm so glad, uh, Tressa and Lisa, you both were like on me to get on to get onto the show for our new cherry flavor, which is what we've just been re- reviewing. If you've just tuned in, look, it's currently streaming on Netflix. Um, do check it out. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. You're here with Lisa Kovacevic and myself, Flick Ford. We've also got Dr. Tressa Leclerc joining us. So today's show is all about women and power and more specifically about the way women engage with power in the screen industry through representation that's both on screen and behind the camera and can include script writing, on-screen performance directing and a woman who does All that and so much more is the wonderful Michaela Cole, who is the creator, writer, co-director, executive producer and star of I May Destroy You. She was recently awarded an Emmy for limited series writing. Um, Cole made history as the first black woman to win the award and she dedicated the award to every single survivor of sexual assault. The series I May Destroy You is based on Cole's own experience of sexual assault. And look, if this is a topic um, that is triggering for you, you can always tune back into Triple R in about uh, 15 minutes. Um, I May Destroy You is set in present-day London. Cole stars as Arabella, a young writer trying to rebuild her life after being raped. The following clip is a scene from a rape victim support group that Arabella joins. Well, Bob probably does think you're crazy. He thinks this is all a little uncalled for and this personal space thing is all going a bit too far. And he's very confident in his view because he's gone exploring to see for himself what boundaries and violations these women might be banging on about because Bob's thorough. And on his explorations, Bob found the line that separated him from everything else. That is a wonderful scene from I May Destroy You. I absolutely love how Michaela Cole captures this, um, the poetry there and this is a beautiful um, rhythm to her voice there. Um, so listeners may be familiar with Michaela Cole from Chewing Gum, which is a British comedy series from, I think, 2015, which she created, wrote and starred in. She also won a BAFTA for that um, for Best Female Comedy Performance in I May Destroy, Destroy You, Cole plays Arabella, a writer struggling to finish the final draft of her follow-up book on time. On a night out on town with friends, her drink is spiked and over the next few days she pieces together what happened. I May Destroy You is based on Cole's lived experience. Arabella shares so many similarities with Cole. She's a survivor of rape. She's a public figure. She's a writer. In many respects, the TV show is as much about writing and um, the creative process as it is about trauma. Um, What did you think about the way that Cole weaves written and spoken word into the series, Tressa? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. I love how she does that. And it's not just the written and spoken word. It's all the visuals as well. I mean, you really feel this sort of sense of calm at times. You're following her as she's, and I love that that part that you played as well because it so encapsulates 
the series because she's expressing the unexpressible, mm. that line, that gray area. She keeps repeating this line. Yeah. It doesn't seem like the show is just about sexual assault. The show is about that line. Mm. There's all these points where she's discussing her book, discussing her writing, even the struggle of writing through trauma, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do and the anxiety of people asking where your manuscript is at the same time. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, that gray area, that line, that space, that's so difficult to articulate that she presents to us through this series of artistic forms is really amazing and mind-boggling and incredible to witness and kind of go through at the same time. Because we're even watching this thinking through the fact that this is also based on an experience that she's mm. actually had. And so that line between even fiction and reality and following her awards and her success, we're all sort of sharing that experience as we're watching, you know, this fictional story. Yeah, absolutely. That's a beautiful point to make as well about that blurring, because I think what is so powerful about representations like this is that it speaks to a... um, it speaks to lived experience of other people as well. So when you're watching this and you see your story on screen, there is something very um, cathartic sometimes, sometimes very painful about watching it. But um, I, I love listening to her talk and she's spoken a lot about how the trauma of her rape made her see the world in binaries. And it's so interesting with what she does with this TV series is actually she splits up those binaries. And even her friends who do, like, friendship is a massive part of this show. And I think it shows each of the characters in such complexity and there's so much um, nuance to how their friendship changes over what happens to her, what happens to some of her friends when they go out and when they're dating and it's so interesting how there's this complexity and I think she really investigates this not just on a narrative level, she investigates it on a formal level which I find so beautiful about this series. Um, A lot of my research actually is based on this notion of film form as representation and when I look at I May Destroy You as a body, I think of it as this really fragmented body. Um, It repeats on itself. I won't destroy the (laughs) final episode, which is a masterclass in form. Um, I highly recommend everyone watch it until the end. It is difficult watching at times but it does – it just – this body that she creates in the form – it just refuses to comply with convention and I think especially in that final episode we see it in its magnificent magnificence. <laughs> Got there in the end. I'm repeating on myself. But I, I think it's something that's really important to touch upon is that it's a very funny show as well. Like there's a lot of lightness and some great banging tunes as well. Um, yeah. It's got an incredible soundtrack. Um, and I, I agree with you, Flick, because when you told me to watch it, you didn't tell me anything about it. <laughs> I um, like you to just go in I fresh. Actually, I appreciate it. I was, um, yeah, it floored me actually because mm. it really, it was quite a shock because as you say there's a lot of humor to this um and and so I thought I was watching a comedy to, to you begin are watching with. a comedy and you are yeah that's right <laughs> it's it's layered but um but yeah I, I love the way Cole uses laughter to disassociate from trauma but she also uses it to get closer to it yeah um and I think that's a really clever tool um and and it, it's a reminder that, yeah of how um how comedy and laughter can be revelatory for people in many ways and it can be used as a tool to sort of, um, I guess, 
work out our internal machinations. Oh, absolutely. It's interesting when um, we were talking before um, you got to speak with the showrunners of Brand New Cherry Flavour and obviously that is on Netflix, but Cole actually, so she was offered a deal with Netflix and very controversially she turned them down because um, of what it would require for her to give up um, with ownership over her story. And I just thought that was such a powerful move by her. Um, She instead bargained for a better deal with HBO and now the series is available on binge so she's kind of she talks a lot about it in her very in her personal life but then it also plays into the tv series with arabella who herself is bargaining for um you know who gets to tell her story and she goes online to do that um tressa i'm i'm sure that you've had lots of um you've probably with your written work you're you're sharing it online but you you also work in an academic um world as well what do you think about the significance of voice and who gets to have a platform in these spaces? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, we've just looked at two very different kinds of representation kind of to bring it back. Like we've looked at, um, you know, representation as in Latinx representation, but, you know, the, that that's not necessarily writing the show. That's not necessarily having a hand in the way things are represented. And, you know, I do have a, a few kind of, I, I was a little uneasy about the indigenous content or the, the the references they were making there inside of the series. So we can think about how many different people are involved in the series and how the representation is done through the lens through which it's viewed. We we tend to think of things as audiences, as you know, white and male, and that being mm. the default audience. When we see things like what Michaela Cole has produced where it's almost like this is for me and this is for the the survivors and, you know, this is for potentially people, like I want people to see me inside of this as well as I want people like me to watch this and see themselves represented in it. That's really powerful. That's a lot of layers of representation. Um, And also putting your own story out there is incredible. And we saw all those synergies with social media and how we put ourselves out Mm. there and how it can be really addicting um and also almost damaging but like totally yeah but she she interrogates that as well doesn't she like yeah she 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 is not herself um protected from that really close lens i i love that about this series you use the word interrogation and it's very astute she she turns the lens on herself so often Mm. and it's so uncomfortable absolutely yeah and it and it and it it's so warranted as well she has she's so critical of herself because i think i really what i really admire about this series um uh, is her um what's the word there's a freedom to what she's doing and Mm. the way she represents real is unlike anything I've actually ever seen on on mm. it just takes realism to another level on the screen for me the the representation of sex in this is um so so on point I felt I mean there's she talks she's having sex with a guy while she's on her period and it's uncomfortable and he removes a tampon and we're and mm. like talking about abjection which we were sort of talking about those abject spaces uh, we're about cherry flavor I mean she's putting it on the screen it's totally. not this um <laughs> abstract idea it's there for you to see it's like the, you know the, the female body um in all its sort of states um but she's also critical uh, of herself in the way she sort of she treats her friends because 
because mm. there's a she has a male uh, oh, Kwame. friend Kwame yeah. who who's a homosexual man who just who doesn't realize but he's sort of trying to go through his own sort of trauma which he's experienced and he's just coming to grips with that and she's she's not equipped to help him at all and she's well, she's yeah. very critical so there's like a critique of herself and the way that we we look at um uh you know female let's say rape and versus male and mm. and so she she brings all this stuff i think though that 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 scene, that um dynamic between mm. Kwame and Arabella i think is so essential though because it talks to when we don't have enough voices and when we don't have a diversity of voices and we don't have that representation what happens is someone becomes the one spokeswoman for for rape mm-hmm. for for being a black woman talking about rape when actually what we need is for those voices to be amplified and for them to be multiplied and that allows for to speak to a truth because when you have all of that um, responsibility on one set of shoulders it's just unrealistic and it puts too much on to one person and I think that that's what the Arabella's character, I think that's what she grapples with. You know, she thinks, I have to save all these women. These people need so much to me. And people come up to her on the street and they tell her their trauma and their stories. And she feels like, I need to tell them. I need to bring all of this in. And um, she burns out. And it's interesting because both um, uh, Cole as a person, but also Arabella, both of them talk a lot about self-care, which has, you know, features so much when we're talking about female identity and particularly um uh, capitalist, <laughs> um, you know, the, the way in which capitalist society has definitely um, taken that into all co-op, sorts of different co-opted, co-opted it, it yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. But also That's that, a better way to that put feeling it. of wanting to make sense of everything I felt mm. like was really prominent as well. Like even when she's trying to piece together what happened, yeah. where she's trying to piece together the story to where we're trying to communicate, communicate what's happening with us on social media, you know, it's all about, you know, how do we articulate our own stories Totally. And I I actually think that the strength of this story is that she leaves it undone. And I think that there's so many scenes in which there's no closure. And I I think that there doesn't need to be. And we see it, we see it in the narrative, we see it in the characters, we see it formally. Honestly, I um, cannot recommend this series enough. Um, Please check out I May Destroy You. Um, it's currently on Foxtel and Binge. It was actually this show. I have to just give a shout out to Get Down's Chris Gill. He actually got me onto this. I interviewed um, a whole ha- a whole heap of Triple R presenters at the end of last year about what TV shows were getting them through lockdown. And Chris Gill's pick was I May Destroy You. So thanks for getting me onto it. I now have got hopefully a few more listeners onto the show as well. It really is. Uh, spectacular. We've been reviewing the Emmy award-winning series I May Destroy You, which is on Foxtel and Binge. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. So for today's show, uh, Lisa spoke with the showrunners of Brand New Cherry Flavor, Nick and Tosca and Lenore Zion. We also reviewed Brand New Cherry Flavor, which is on Netflix, and we finished up just then with our review of I May Destroy You. I hope... uh, Tonight's discussion about women and power has been engaging for you. If you'd like to explore some of the concepts um, that we've discussed in relation to consent and the abuse of power in an Australian context, um, I can actually give you two quick recommendations. So the first is a recent five-episode podcast series called Everybody Knows by Ruby Jones. 
and the podcast The Trap by Jess Hill, who is the author of See What You Made Me Do, which is all about domestic violence in Australia. Um, I actually had the pleasure of interviewing Jess on Breakfasters earlier in the year. Um, and you can also, if you'd like to know more information or have more resources, the Victorian Women's Trust is an excellent resource. Um, and also, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I know that we've talked about a lot of um, a lot of heavy topics tonight. So if there's anything that we've discussed tonight that has brought something up for you, support is always available. Um, here in Victoria, you can call 1800 806 292 um, for the telephone crisis counselling line. Uh, you can also listen back to our show on triplear.org.au. Um, a big thank you to Dr. Tressa Leclerc for joining us. I hope, uh, <laughs> I hope um, with, uh, we've, I feel like we've talked so much about um, these shows. I, I feel like we've got a few more listeners on board. I hope so. Yeah. And thank you, Lisa, as always, for joining You're welcome. us. welcome. Pleasure. Um, thank you to Carl for um, panelling for tonight and also for providing producing assistance. Big shout out to Morty Osborne for editing our podcast. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.